Shaniqua Gay, welcome to Today, Maybe Forever. That's the name of this podcast. So today is a very finite thing. It's always moving, but it's today. Forever uh, is infinite, but it's also discreet. Like it's a forever is always in the future, uh, moving forward. But in between today, well, between today and forever, there's lots of maybes mm. in, in our our lives, uh, which kind of creates some interesting moments of uh, fluid, fluidness, fluidity. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm glad to have some time with you. It's been a while since we had a chance to talk on the record, so to speak. Uh, how you feeling? I'm feeling great. I'm very grateful to be a part and to be considered. Well, I'm glad that you had some time. We're here at the goat farm in your studio. Um, it's nice and, and, and cool in here because it's, it's toasty outside. But uh, I like I like the the the, uh, the temperature in here. It's very nice. I'll take this any day. Atlanta summers can be brutal. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were just talking a few minutes ago about being found and being seen and having someone find your work. What does that feel like when when someone who you don't know comes across your work and feels moved by it? It's ridiculously flattering. <laughs> um, and it shocks me every time. Uh, solely because, you know, um, or I'll say for me, as an artist, you don't want to have too many expectations. Um, I, I'm always grateful when people love my work enough to like it, but love my work even more so to invite it in their home. You know, a home is the most intimate space that we have outside of our bodies. Um, and so to allow a part of me to be with you on a daily basis, like that's huge. You know, it's no different than inviting somebody over for a meal because a meal is an intimate um an intimate thing to have between people so it's kind of like uh, people are allowing me to eat in their space every day <laughs> and they're allowing you to eat by buying your work what <laughs> that. you know um and, and one of the the things that i always like to talk to you about um whenever i see you is is this notion of where you are as as a black woman as a mother hmm. you know because i feel like a lot of your work um, especially when I think about the work and the juxtaposition of, of the black men and the, the deer, mm-hmm. um, in your work, I feel like it's, I feel like you're coming at it from a mother's perspective. I always feel like that, even if that may not be the case, I just, mm-hmm. I know that about you. So it, it, it feels that way. Mm-hmm. Um, as a mom, just where are you right now? Um, Trying not to choke my son because he's in love with girls. Oh, right, <laughs> right. So he's always been in love with girls, but now he, you know, he's older. He's seventeen, so he officially, officially has had um, about two, two girlfriends. Okay, and uh, they're older. Okay, right? he likes older women. How much older? Um, well, when he was a sophomore, he had a girlfriend that was a senior. Hey, not mad. What? Not mad. Oh, man. Whatever. <laughs> you know, dudes handle things much, much differently. All but right. but yeah, currently, yeah. he's a junior, and okay. he, has, he has had two other girlfriends who have both been seniors, um, which is not surprising. He, by and large, has been an only child most of his life. 
And so older, um, only children have a tendency to be a little bit older uh, because they're interacting with adults more than they are with, with children. So it's not necessarily surprising because he's old. Um, but as a, as a mom of an African-American male, it is the most beautiful, impactful, amazing, and at times fretful experience, right? Um, I'm reading or have uh, finished reading probably about a week ago In the Wake. I think her name is by Christina Sharp. Don't quote me. Um, but she um, gave a, a breakdown of her friend, you know, um, talking about her son being fearful, um, asking for uh, uh, a, um, what is it? Not a breastplate, but a um, body armor. What is it? A bulletproof vest. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? Uh, her 13-year-old son asked if he could have a bulletproof vest. And so she was trying to assure her son, everything's going to be okay. Don't worry. You don't need a bulletproof vest. So on one end, assuring your son of safety, but on the other end, knowing that you can't. Mm. Right? Yeah. Knowing that at any given point in time, because somebody chooses um, to have ownership over your body, they can take it. And that's difficult because we're also dealing with um, people who are not well. <laughs> You know, um, that's that's not a well thought to feel like you have ownership over somebody. And a lot of that is generational. A lot of that we're still dealing with is that people think they still own us. And by this permission that keeps happening where um, people are being, you know, not prosecuted for their wrongs against anybody, but most specifically the black male body. I feel like it's confusing, but even for me as a, a mom, whether I, you know, I have no promise that anything like that would ever happen to my son, but it is in the back of my mind. Yeah. Right. And so, um, you know, I want to talk about it. I want to talk about things when they meet me at my door. I want to talk about them, you know, um, not so much so that they can't, but to say that I've been a part of the conversation. Yeah. yeah. When you say that it, it, it makes me think back to conversations, not even conversations, but just things that my mom would, would, would tell me. Mm-hmm. And now feeling like I understand what she was really trying to say, even right. if she couldn't really say it. So mm-hmm. I know when I was when I was younger, probably about your son's age, maybe like a little bit older when I was in college and I, and I had moved out of the house. Mm-hmm. And I remember um, whenever I would go out, and maybe it was... Um, Perhaps I was home during the summertime, so maybe I was I was out of the house, but I had come home for the for the summer. Right. She would always be like, you know, be careful, you know, and and not even like thinking about it. Like, yeah, be careful, yeah. Like it's you kind of like brush it off. Normal parental right. encouragement. But I think I understand sort of the tone that she was trying to say it with better. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a certain amount of fear healthy or unhealthy that I think mothers send their children out into the world with. Mm-hmm. And you know that once they're out of the house, you can't protect them. You can't really, you know, keep things away from them. And I think that her knowing how the world works, mm-hmm. you know, be careful or do this or do that, mm-hmm. um, check in or just mm-hmm. sort of things that mm-hmm. it always felt like she was trying to say she was emoting something without trying to say it because she didn't want to alarm me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and Mm -hmm. i i feel like now where we have so many more instances of of what you're talking about 
I get what she was trying to say. Mm-hmm. And even now, I mean, even I'm, I'm you know, mm-hmm. I'm grown, but my mom still, <laughs> I, I just feel like she just still is never going to not be my mom. So right. she's going to always feel like. You, you're always her baby. Right. Like that, you know, all, that, all, that position never changes. And so this thing about ownership <laughs> though, right? Like mm-hmm. I think as a parent, you always have some level of like ownership of your kid. Mm-hmm. Even if they're grown, like you're still mine. Mm-hmm. So to have the thought that someone could take mine from me mm. is just a very devastating thought you know it's gut-wrenching it's overwhelming it's um yeah just all all of those things it's very difficult to um even fathom or even entertain you know um so what you're even talking about is just normal parental concern for your child but within the black community it always you know you gotta take it two three seven steps you know deeper we gotta have the talk Mm -hmm. You know about you being a black man about you having agency um and how that agency can be taken you know um yeah so it's like the the conversations that you don't want to have that you know that your friends who have children of other nationalities they think i'm gonna have to talk to their kids about that mm-hmm. you know like that's incensing and you know kind of makes me live it in a way like you're never gonna have to talk to your child about how to behave because a police officer stopped you solely because of the skin color not because your tag is expired or because you have a tail light out you're not doing anything wrong you're driving the speed limit and they're stopping you solely because of who you are not because you've done anything wrong have you had any experience personally with someone who has been killed by police um, not killed by police. And I don't want to say it like in like those dark terms, but like, right. you know, like that's, you know, killed at the hands of law enforcement or just had had conflict with law enforcement like that. Oh, of course, conflict with law mm-hmm. enforcement. So um, I, I'm in a black family. <laughs> so uh, several black men, um, you know, I can even talk about with my brother, um, you know, prior to him passing, and when he passed, we still have a lot of question marks about how he died. Uh, that's, that's crazy. You're asking me that. I was just talking to my mom about that this morning. We still have question marks. We don't know if, <clears throat> you know, officers did encounter my brother and have an issue with him, um, or if someone ran him off the road. You know, we were told that it was an accident, but the police report and, you know, my brother's actual death, they don't coincide uh, they said the roads were slick it wasn't raining um you know it's just questions lots of questions about yeah. what happened with him and you know um but even with him you know he um was in um interracial relationships and his most consistent girlfriend um they were out and about and um he had an officer basically stop him because they were out and about and he was basically arrested because he was with a caucasian female right so um that sits close to home that's familiar um but not just where police um, brutality or violence is concerned you know i talked to my you know my son more likely will have interactions with people who look like him as opposed to a caucasian police officer you know um i've had at least two or three cousins within the past five years be killed you know, um, by people who look like them. 
And so um, in that respect, it's difficult and it does make you have like this kind of um, tensing up. I did start like um, this body of work after my brother died because it was cathartic. Um, it helped me deal. Um, my brother and I were very close. My brother and I lived together. My brother died five seconds away from the place that we lived. So like all of that's devastating. And I needed a way to like deal with it because um, for three years, I didn't paint anything. I didn't do anything. Um, I didn't even try. <laughs> I honestly, um, I went, I went back to school to make myself do something because otherwise I was numb. Mm. You know, um, just acting outside of character and um, I wasn't creating anything and I didn't want to. And so helping like kind of develop this body of work, um, you know, as a sister, as a brother, as a mother, um, as somebody's daughter of black men, why not? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like how, how black people process death is just really interesting to me. Um, when we, when death, when there's, when there's violence, you know, mm -hmm. or death, when we, when we feel like it wasn't the right time right. for that, for that person um, mm -hmm. to go, because I think that when it comes to the awareness that you have, when you're in danger, whether it be through your surroundings mm -hmm. of people who look like you or mm -hmm. whether you're in danger uh, or possible danger in confrontation with law enforcement. Like there's always this sort of awareness of like how you move and negotiate those situations. Mm -hmm. um, and I think about that a lot. Like there are times when something really could have gone down in a different, in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that we, we process that and we, we, we hold that in a lot. Mm hmm or it becomes like communal knowledge in terms of like how you how you move through the world. Yeah, it's like an understanding, it's like a look, right? So you've been out with your folks and something weird goes down and y'all give each other the look. We gotta go. Right. You don't even have to yeah. you don't have to you, you see what's up. So yeah. like you don't even have to verbalize it and you know <laughs> It's like to be black in America and you come out with some sanity, you doing good. Because mm. there's a level of PTSD that we don't talk about or that we don't deal with. Communal. Communal PTSD. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who is it? What's the name of the show? Uh, is it Vice Man? Has Vice Man become a, like a... It's a, a network. Full, a net, full yeah. network. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. So they're dealing with marijuana in California. Okay. And uh, how, um, you know, how we say like it's a cultural norm. But they're coming coming at it from a like is uh, are people smoking weed as a form of PTSD, like a form of kind of medicating, mm -hmm. um, because you're always in a space of endangerment, yeah. you know, like in Compton or you know where violence and um, something happening towards your body on an everyday basis, you medicating that, um, and we all do it yeah. in some form or fashion, whether it's drugs or alcohol or you know other other forms of addiction um it could be sexual it could be food we all have it yeah, yeah. i mean i i've I, i've talked to friends about this when it comes to the the music um mm -hmm. where i don't know who said it but it it the notion was that we've gone from you know drug dealers to drug users in the music oh yo my you know? homeboy just sent me a text about that and, somebody said said that uh a quote about um 
crazy because we were talking about the new uh, Big Boy and Killer Mike song, Kill Jill, uh-huh, uh-huh. and um, how we can understand everything they're saying. <laughs> <laughs> but in comparison to because, you know, like uh, top of the billboards, like top 10 is Molly Percocet. Yeah. Right. Which I'm, I like. I like Future. I'm. I'm, I'm a not, Future fan. I'm not, I'm but, not taking but, away yeah, from Future, yeah. but like it's real though. It's, it's real. real. It's real. It's yeah. real. Where you know the drug user is now behind the mic. Yeah. And go ahead. No, but no, but but <laughs> going back to the whole self medication though, like mm-hmm. I feel like so many of of the artists. I think if you if you come out of urban environments in this country where you were exposed to mm-hmm. a lot of the marginal activity, the things that kind of exist, you know, this other world, other economy, mm-hmm. it does something to you, you know, it does something to your spirit. And I feel like a lot of the artists who may have come from that or gone through that mm-hmm. um, have demons that they have to deal with. Right, because that that otherness, that marginalization has a type of carnival experience to it, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. It has this type of uh, mythical experience mm-hmm. to it. And because it's not the norm, and you do have people who don't experience that every day, and our experiences are put up on television as though they're dangerous, yeah, and it's something wrong with us, and people engage with us in that way, um, instead of seeing it and not using it as a bad word, but like a, a primitive way of surviving. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. So it's still tribal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not a bad thing. Um, but just because you don't get it and you don't understand it doesn't make it wrong. Right. I mean, I, I've often felt like the art that comes out of some of these places is already sort of demonized to a certain mm-hmm. extent mm-hmm. rather than scrutinized or explored to figure mm-hmm. out so like you know where is the story where is the narrative in this right. because these these stories don't exist without other context mm-hmm. that kind of helps to elevate them and I think that a lot of the artists because they make very catchy music <laughs> it's very catchy mm-hmm. and it's of the now mm-hmm. that the substance of what these individuals have endured or you know or or gone through isn't really explored and right. so you don't you don't feel it as as real mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and so the ptsd or the self-medication mm-hmm. or the things that people used to cope mm-hmm. doesn't always get the full attention of of the broader audience i think i don't i don't think so mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so drugs, period, are used to medicate, yeah. right? Um, so just like, you know, on the on the broke side of the end, they medicate, and they medicate on the wealthy side. Too. Yeah, true. You know, more so, more so, but they don't, they're not dealing with the cases, right? Because yeah. they got the lawyers, and they can afford it. Um, you know, where we're demonized as drug users, you know, they rehabilitated, you know, and they have that, that, that freedom. And money provides that freedom. Um, but to always be in a position of feeling like your body is endangered, that there is some type of otherness to who you are. <laughs> it's like, how do you come out of that? There is also a level of arrested development. Um, uh, this kind of boy, gal, how people deal with you. Um, this surprise, 
aspect. Like, I got you. Mm-hmm. Kind of like that Zimmerman, Trayvon aspect um, of having somebody follow you and take ownership of your body and treat you as though on one end you're a man, but on the other end you're a boy. Do you know what I mean? Go deeper. Say, um, Go deeper. No. Um, <laughs> 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 well, yeah, so like at 17, my son is a kid. Yeah. But because he's six feet now and he has facial hair and he has a deep voice, he is dealt with by some as though he is a man. You know, for me, he's a kid. There's still, you know, your pituitary gland has not fully developed. There are mm. still things about you that I know, even as mature as he is, he's still a kid. Yeah. You know, he's still goofy video game playing, uh, Captain Crunch eating kid, you know. But when we're talking about kind of like that Zimmerman, Trayvon, talking about that slave master man boy master boy type of mentality and how he was dealt with to me or how anybody is being dealt with where your badge and even in Zimmerman's case he didn't have a badge yeah he didn't even have permission but there is a level of permission that was given because he was uh, let off uh, Jill Scott sent out a tweet when we got back the verdict for Zimmerman and she said it's permission and I think about how the uptick went up from there. And like, it was coming back to back with uh, constantly hearing about a police officer and engagement with a black male. But I don't want us to miss the mark and be so consumed by those interactions that we are not just obsessed with Chicago. Like we should be just as obsessed with that um, as we are with these interactions between police officers and um, black males because what is it are we at 6,646 or something like that something crazy the number is crazy um from now between now and 2012 how do we how do we get more obsessed about that about about chicago or in, in I mean, not just Chicago. All there's other all neighbors. Over, just, yeah, all over, yeah. like all over the country. You can talk about right here in yeah, Atlanta. Atlanta. Yeah. <laughs> you can talk about right here. I, I just told you, like uh, my cousin Mantrell Gay, he was shot in the face. Yes, two years ago now, shot in the face over in the West End, um, for some drug gang um, issues. And not to say that he he didn't play a part in his demise. I won't say that. Um, but gangs and drugs are a norm on a certain side of my family and um, also lack of graduation rates so um, most specifically I say on my father's side of the family um, most of the boys don't finish high school most of them by 8th I may give them ninth grade (laughs) Um, find themselves at that time on my grandmother's couch so if you weren't going to finish school, my aunts and uncles would send them to live with their mother, my grandmother, and they would sleep on her couch and sell drugs. Right? And so um, lack of education, lack of opportunity, lack of choices leads you to that lifestyle. And so I think it's important to deal with the um, systemic issues yeah. and generational issues and what makes that the norm. And how do you come out of that? Uh, I don't think. 
I don't think sometimes we feel like we can. Not to say that we can't. Yeah. I don't feel like sometimes we feel like we have those. You don't feel like you have a choice. You know, they're. it's not like they're, you know, really trying to make beautiful recidivism programs. For no. Uh, I, I just posted today about um, Georgia has the most prison occupancy in the U.S. Isn't that crazy? What? Yeah. Georgia, so most uh, prison occupants, so the, with correct, correctional issues, so mm-hmm. whether you're on probation, parole, in prison, or in jail, Georgia houses the most in the United States of America. So whereas most people, most prison facilities or probation jails is one out of 31 in the U.S., uh, Georgia is one out of 13. Wow. And so, you know, out of that one out of 13, seven of those of people of color. We, we make up the most. Wow. And so that's gut-wrenching. How do you correct that? How do you stop that from being generational? You stop that. So my thing is you you have to start in the household. And so I'm telling you generational things with my cousins. So we're talking about cousins who are anywhere between the ages of 25 to 42. That's most black males in prison. 18, 45. Mm. Where you have a high school dropout. You have most are illiterate. And most have been dealing drugs or have had access to drugs since they were children. And to feel like that's a carnival, <laughs> somebody's spectacle, or somebody's joke. People rap about stuff because that's the necessary part of their life. Yeah. It doesn't make it bad. It's just what they know. And until we find ways to make a new normal, it's not that drugs and alcohol have not been issues in our community. It's just, I don't think I've ever seen it to this rate. Um, and, you know, I grew up in the 80s and, and seeing, you know, our people, our communities being uh, depleted by those things. But um, now it's uh, uh, from the 80s to now, that means you have a whole generation of people where they, that's what the, the only thing they know. How do you come up with that? I don't know. Fully. I don't know. (laughs) You know, you, you, you talk about the education piece of that. Mm -hmm. And I have more questions than I have answers, but I think as, as a mom, you know, you, you know, probably spend more time thinking about education with your, your son um, Mm -hmm. and what he's getting out of his education. I was telling someone early in the week, you know, growing up in Atlanta in a certain period of time, like public schools were, we're kind of okay. Like it was cool. Public school. I grew up in Riverdale, Georgia. Like it was my Riverdale, Georgia, which lost their accreditation like what four or five years ago, something like that. Riverdale, Georgia, in the time that I went to school in elementary to high school, was the number one educational system in America. In America, Riverdale, Georgia. They you can Google it. Okay, you can and- Google it. So, but like, um, but that was also suburb the suburbs, um, and. It was also a certain, I guess, uh, uh, status that came with being there. Yeah. So our communities don't always have access to those statuses. But continue. No, no, I was saying, like, to me, it always felt like public school was good enough for your kid. More than good enough. You know, and mm-hmm. more than in, mm-hmm. in, 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 in many cases. And I feel like now there's this rush to run away from public school. 
for a lot of a lot of families who who have the means to run away mm-hmm. and i don't even want to use that term run, run away but it's kind of that way mm-hmm. and i say that to say that i think in this diversion of attention away from public schools mm-hmm. you're you know you have less engaged communities mm-hmm. in the public schools mm-hmm. um the money isn't being poured into the public schools and so if you can't afford the private school or if you can't get into the charter school mm-hmm. um then there's a a gap that you're starting off with very early mm-hmm. in terms of what your your kids have have access to and what people are going to fund and have resources for i think yeah well no i'm not taking away from what you're saying but i also feel like that's a decision um so i'm one of those education stars at home mm-hmm. so the school system is a buffer it, it, it ain't the maker of the student okay you know um uh, you know my son was reading before he got to school so that was like pinnacle for 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 me and my um then husband uh, we didn't play that somebody else teach my kid so whether he goes to a charter school or a private school or a magnet school he's good because we've invested in him from our own personal knowledge of what we have uh, you know i don't think it's the school's responsibility to educate my child now he he may be educated with a lot of unnecessary stuff you know you know what's the most important hip-hop verse but he's educated you know what i mean like i'm I'm joking but like no no you know just bombarded with information i'm always bombarding my son with information probably to the point that he is just like finds it you know repulsive it's like please stop but i mean but i I guess (laughs) I, i i did not want to make it seem as though the school system is sort of the is the defining characteristic of of kind of you know better communities but i i want to incorporate what you said mm-hmm. my my parents were very invested in me mm-hmm. um along with me being in public schools you know my mm-hmm. mom was always up at the school doing mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. and so i think she would have been invested no matter where i went to school mm-hmm. um but it feels like um when there's both a lack of attention at home mm-hmm. and the school system is and bad. And the school system is bad. Then it's just so tough. Hard. It's tough. <laughs> it's hard. Um, yeah, because we, you know, one thing we lack in our communities is a supportive PTA system. Yeah, that's huge. Um, you know, I got to witness to that at a couple of schools um, working as an America member through. Um, uh, what was then creating pride and also um, a team's program at Georgia State University. So I worked at South Atlanta High School. I worked at Bethune-Cookman at several elementary schools within Atlanta Public School System. And a major thing that we noticed in me sitting with boards and um, sitting with administrators is PTA is weak. Mm. And that's major. You know, so you can go to a a public school, but if you have a supportive parent-teacher association, it don't matter if you're in public or private school. The major is the parent and teacher support. It's that kind of mission mm-hmm. that we're missing. When do you feel most happy <laughs> and when do you feel most safe? Mm. Why are you asking me these deep questions? 
when I feel most happy. Yeah. Um, look, happy and, and safe or deep. Yeah. So I'll start with safe because uh, as an artist, I'm always looking for spaces of safety. And not just as an artist, as somebody who um, grew up in spaces that were not always safe. Safety is very important to me. Um, and when I feel safe, then I can create. And when I can create, then I'm happy. Um, so I feel most safe when I'm at peace, when I'm around my family. I feel most safe in spaces like this at the Gold Farm. I don't feel like I'm being impeded upon in any way. I feel free. I feel free to, to be myself. I don't feel judged in any way. And so with that, um, I feel most at joy when I'm able to be able to create in safe spaces. And not just create, be able to commune, um, to be with my family, um, to be under my son, to be under my friends. Yeah, that's when I feel safe and happy. And food. Yeah? yeah. What kind of food? Oh my God. I What's in the kitchen? Food. What's in the I kitchen love right now? Food. Um, I love to eat. So I was just talking to uh, an associate yesterday. We were talking about maybe we were um, from Thailand at a, another point in our life. <laughs> okay. Right? Because I love Thai food. Singapore noodle with shrimp. Oh my God. Like close to sex. Okay. <laughs> Mental note, I gotta mental go. Note, yeah, right. mental note. It's so good. Um, so fruit, vegetables, all all that good stuff. Yeah. I, I love just I love to eat, but Thai food is probably a major. But I've always been a foodie. Gotcha. Since I was a kid. So food is like very, very essential. So, you know, they say like um key to a man's heart is through the stomach. Yeah. Key to Shaniko's heart is through her stomach. Understood. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> Shaniqua. Yes. Thank you for your time. Oh, Partying is such sweet stuff. Oh, it is. <laughs> but I'm appreciative. Good, good, good. Thank you.